and to say, what's working here really well? Maybe I've done this 10 semesters in a row and I know that this always hits really nicely, but what is the missing piece here? Or what's something that I just might not have been able to do before that I can do a little bit better now? And so letting that kind of guide the conversation less about forcing an app or website into a situation and more about saying what's really my goal here right what's my intention and letting that help drive the conversation hi team helium welcome to episode 31 of the helium podcast Uh, this completes our three episode arc of educational episodes and this week Dr. Monica Burns is joining us, and Dr. Burns is a speaker, an author, and an ed tech consultant who is the principal of Class Tech Tips, and she's also the host of the Easy Ed Tech podcast, and her self-stated mission is to help educators place tasks before apps and promote deeper learning using technology. Um, real quick, I'm just thinking of this, a note from our patient editor, uh, my husband, Zach, um, is that in fact, Daft Punk was not part of creating this, um, episode. There are a couple of snafus in the, um, in the audio and you may hear those, but he, uh, still thought it was worth it. And we do too, because there's a lot of practical ideas in this episode. You can kind of go through and get ideas about technologies that you might want to adapt and try in the classroom. Um, She talks specifically about a few different examples, which is always helpful for me. And we thought you might want to check them out. Yeah. And she talks about um, the fact that you don't want to assume that although students are very familiar with technology, they've grown up with technology throughout their lives, that you don't want to assume that they've used these technologies in the classroom setting. So They are digital natives, but they might not be educational digital natives. So she really makes a point of that in the episode, and I think that's an important one to consider when you're considering the different types of technologies she suggests in the episode. And certainly go check out her podcast, the Easy Ed Tech Podcast, where she expands on a lot of this stuff. All right. Well, we hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Monica Burns. Today, we're welcome to the podcast, Dr. Monica Burns. Uh, Her self-stated mission is to help educators place the tasks before apps and promote deeper learning with technology. Welcome, Monica. Thank you so much for having me. Well, so I wanted to start out with this quite a mission statement, and I I think it's a pretty timely one. Um, currently I am not a lecturer. I don't lecture at the university I work, work at, but every time I walk by the classrooms that are in my building, it's pretty traditional. You know, it's students sitting there taking notes on their notebook or their laptop. Uh, some of them look like they're half asleep, uh, staring at a PowerPoint presentation. At least the professors have moved on from transparencies, uh, at least, but, um, (laughs) I wanted to talk to you about what motivates you in this in this timely area of like integrating tech into the classroom. Why did you start your blog? Why did you start your your podcast, which just launched, uh, I think, this month? Yeah, so so excited to speak with you both. And it's funny that you mentioned transparencies because I often share with people just yesterday, I was doing a presentation and said, I started a classroom with overhead projector, transparencies and markers on my fingers, and then transitioned into a one-to-one environment where every student had their own device you know, all the time having that access. And so I started my blog, Class Tech Tips, 
Com. In 2012, when I was a classroom teacher in New York City, I had spoken at an event hosted by Apple Education at the time. I kind of got in, you know, roped into something I didn't quite understand, you know, in the sense that, oh, sure, just come and, and talk to a few teachers about how you're doing uh, this in a classroom. Showed up with about 400 people in the audience, my first time kind of on a big stage. And I don't worry, you can do this. Just say, do your thing, talk about what you do, no problem. And not only did I kind of get the bug at that point to, you know, share with larger groups like that, but it became quickly, you know, apparent. People started asking, what's your Twitter handle? What's your blog's name? What's your this? That I didn't have a good answer to that question for them. And so within a few months of that first kind of big speaking engagement, you know, I sat down and said, what am I really trying to do here in terms of sharing resources strategically? There's a big need for more help and support within ed tech from a pre-K to 20 space. And so I started my blog and my social media channels with at Class Tech Tips at that time. And that's transitioned now as well into a podcast uh, where my goal is to provide really actionable ideas and tips for teachers. Right? We can always go in uh, very deep um, into the work that we're doing across any content area or any type of technology integration, but really helping people know that there's something they can do to get started and find success right away to hopefully build a foundation for them to grow off of. So it, it is really neat to talk to you because you know, normally our audience is either, you know, early career professors or graduate students and postdocs considering a career in that direction. And your focus is mostly on K through 12 areas. But for a couple of reasons, I think that that's exactly perfect. One being that the students coming in to colleges have a different kind of learning ecosystem than probably myself as an you know, college educator had, you know, it's a, it's just a, com- a completely different mode of learning and a different way of interacting with information dissemination and technology. And then also, I think that the messaging of working with K through 12 audiences, if you can distill what you know as a researcher at the university PI level, to be able to tell other audiences at a variety of different learning levels, then you understand it better yourself. It's kind of a feedback loop that that's all kind of um, part and parcel of doing good, clear research and sharing that research. So I'm wondering about what are some of the lessons about using technology in the classroom that you can think of that apply no matter how advanced the material is or who the audience is that you think university professors should just be ready to appreciate? Well, it's been really interesting thinking about what this all looks like in action, even from a professional development, professional learning perspective. So although I do some work with pre-service teachers who are undergraduates getting ready to teach in K-12 classrooms, and I do some work with graduate students who are full-time educators or developing school leadership um, capacities with different certificate programs. You know, one thing that I always share with people, and I think is really important, whether you're working with students at an undergraduate level who are coming right from high school, right, and walking into a university classroom for the first time, or you're working with graduate students who have spent a lot of time in and out of education and are different stages of their career, is that although we think of, you know, these 
people and these, you know, students and their, you know, ages 16 to say 22, right, having a lot of experience with technology, they don't necessarily have experience with technology in an educational setting, right, or leveraging the power of those tools, right, within a class. So having access, right, to that smartphone in their pocket, you know, Googling something to find the answer, right? If they're looking for a quick response might be something they're very comfortable with, but they may not have the same sort of communication skills online or presentation skills online or things that we would traditionally assume that they might have because they have such robust access to devices. And so not only is that something to think about from a who's in our seats as a student perspective, but when I work with teachers who are brand new, right, classroom teachers, first or second years in, and then teachers who maybe have 15-year experience, right, sometimes there's that assumption by folks outside of education that all the new teachers, well, they just know how this all works, right? They know how, right, the um, new Chromebooks are going to work. They understand how these iPads are going to work. And that may be the case, right, from a uh, technical perspective, but it's the educators who have, you know, the decade plus experience in classrooms with the content and the subject matter and the understanding of the best um, practices in terms of pedagogy that are often the ones that have the most, you know, wonderful aha moments or, oh, this is going to change how I always have done this because now I have access to this other layer of technology. And so they're able to apply some of the things that they've done in the past that either worked pretty well, but now they can do something they just couldn't do before, or they can really elevate that best practice because they have access to something new. That's fascinating. You know, it touches on my own personal life, I've got an elementary school kiddo and a, and a high school kiddo and, you know, interacting with their teachers and how different their experiences are in their ability to engage their classrooms. Um, and also we're in a public school system in a, in a city that doesn't, well, so I should just say that is a, a normal U.S. city that doesn't have sufficient resources mm-hmm. to do what they wish they could do and what they've been trained to do and what they've shown up to do for kids. So I'm I'm really interested in kind of the the insight that you can give, especially for our audience, for teachers that might want some university level interaction with the classroom through, through some of these technologies. So um, thinking about kind of what you might think of as broader impacts for a, a National Science Foundation type of a grant or other type of interactions, I have learned about this program recently called Skype a Scientist, for example, where the, you know, teachers can sign up with a very simple Google Doc to get it, bring a, a scientist in the classroom. So for our listenership, are there some sort of tangible, low-hanging fruit ways that K-12 teachers might be interested in engaging practicing researchers that, um, that we could learn about and, and take this opportunity to sort of spread as a possibility? So I'm so glad you mentioned the Skype in the classroom because it's something that is just like what you said, right? An easy way to connect someone, really large value in terms of getting a big 
terribly challenging to make happen. And I've done Skype in the classrooms with um, schools that I've done some coaching and work with right now. And just, I mean, within the past month or so, so it must've been right at the end of February, um, we did one with a group of fifth graders. So the teacher and I met um, in the wintertime in December, I think it was. And we talked about some of her goals for the year. We went on Skype's um, website to find someone that was doing a program on animal adaptations. And we were able to bring in this park ranger from Yellowstone who Skyped in with their class, with her class, you know, as I'm there snapping pictures and trying to make sure all the tech works and we're all connected. And it was just this fantastic experience, right? While this you know, wonderful woman took everyone, you know, took us right on this virtual tour of her space, answered all the kids' questions about bears and, and all the animals that they could think of. And it was such a wonderful interaction that just wouldn't have been possible. It was because, you know, we don't have access to that and we weren't going to go to Wyoming, right, and have this conversation right within our um, conversations on animal adaptation. So there's definitely a lot of that sort of leveraging of video conferencing that may happen through different resources that are set up with some programming like Skype in the classroom. When I talk about that, it's something I mention in my book, A Task Before Apps, about really making sure that we are thinking about what kids are curious about, what they're excited about. And so that's something too, where you may just have someone right within your network or community that would be the person who could chat about this or who has a class in a different time zone or when they turn their computer and look out the window it's snowing and those students have never seen snow before because they live in a different part of the world or the country so those things that might seem you know small um, for us right are just those low-hanging fruits that you're talking about right so that sort of video conferencing I think is really powerful there's other tools that are free, right, easy to use that can increase engagement, that can help with formative assessment and checking for understanding. One of um, my favorites that I share um, and was sharing with a group just yesterday is Nearpod. That's one that has a free and a paid version. And it's something where you can just take an old PowerPoint. That's how I got started doing it in probably 2020. Take an old PowerPoint upload it to Nearpod. And then all of a sudden, right, you have this opportunity to add in VR experiences, interactive activities, and then push it out, give all your kids a code. I've done this with pre-K students who are four and five years old, all the way up to adult learners um, in professional learning environments. And then all of a sudden their screen turns into what's on your screen. So you can push out that content to them, have interactive things. And so something like that, I also think of as being an easy win, especially if you have a file folder on your computer full of old PowerPoints. Well, wouldn't it be wonderful on slide three to push out a question to everyone instead of just having two people raise their hand, give you an answer that you wanted to hear, and then you feel good that everyone else has got it too, and you move on, right? It's not going to be right as meaningful in terms of an educator gathering formative assessment um, data or for students of any age feeling like their voice is valued and heard. Well, that's, it's, it's kind of the way that it hits me when you're telling me this information makes me think maybe other people who, you know, came up not being educated in this way. The main thing that I feel is that there's definitely so much that I'm not tapping into that I'm just scratching the surface of, right? 
and that there's so much possibility for bringing people in. And, you know, um, so my area of research is kind of boundary spanning across interdisciplinary research in different sectors. And so how can you translate knowledge across fields where there are missed opportunities for shared learning? And these strike me as ways to, to really enable new you know, sparks of ideas, more interaction between all the different people in in the learning environment in all directions. So are there specific ways that you would recommend people who are educators who might be kind of where I am, where, okay, I appreciate the value and I know that I don't exactly know what to do to bring this power into my classroom, either for university students or disseminating out in broader impacts. Are there kind of steps that you would recommend? This is what you should do to educate yourself about how to open your eyes to the different ways you might be able to do this type of ed tech, um, you know, augmentation of your pedagogy. So one thing that I recommend, because it is an overwhelming space, right? And I know I am guilty of the listicle, right? The 15 tools for this or the 14 apps that will solve this imaginary or real problem, right? And so something I often say is, right, if we have our tool belt and it's full of all of these things, it's going to be too heavy. It's going to hit the floor. You're not going to be able to reach anything. So what's the point, right? So you really want to have those, you know, three or four, two or three, whatever feels good you know, spotlight tools that you're really focused on. And I usually encourage folks to do a few things. First is you want to be on the hunt for tools that are open-ended, that can be used and applied in lots of different ways. So you're not saying that you need to use this one time in one way and you'll never see it again until you do that thing again next year, but that you can really do this in multiple ways and make that commitment to just kind of understanding the ins and outs of something. So knowing that, you know, is important. Another piece is to just kind of take stock of the logistics, because if you don't, what's the point, right? You want to make sure that things are going to work. So especially if you are in an environment in higher ed um, or at the secondary level in K-12, where you might have students using their own device, um, the more that you can stay device agnostic or device neutral or BYOD, bring your own device uh, friendly, the better, right? So choosing tools that are going to work on a lot of different things. So that typically means that they are run on a web browser and there may or may not be a native mobile app that corresponds to it. But I want something that someone can do on their smartphone just as easily as they can do on a fancy MacBook um, because I want to make sure that it works for them, right? And they feel good. They don't feel like they need something else to make sure it happens. So once you get those pieces out of the way, it really does come down to looking at things from a lesson and a unit level. It might even be a semester level or a unit built into say an eight, you know, I'm adjuncting right now and we're in week seven of eight, right? So it might be looking at week six, just as its own chunk, as opposed to the entire course. Um, Or you might be giving a lecture and you just want to look at that one day as its own small little piece of time. And to say, what's working here really well, maybe I've done this 10 semesters in a row. And I know that this always hits really nicely, but what is the missing piece here? Or what's something that I just might not have been able to do before that I can do a little bit better now. And so letting that kind of guide the conversation 
less about forcing an app or website into a situation and more about saying, what's really my goal here, right? What's my intention and letting that help drive the conversation. And so as you start thinking, you know, with that mindset, right, then you'll start making connections to one or two tools that might become those spotlight tools. So if you're committed to giving students a new way to demonstrate what they've learned, and you find a movie making tool like Spark Video, and you want to show that off as an example and say, hey, this might be an alternative to that PowerPoint presentation when at the end of the unit, I'm asking you to present what you've learned. And so that might be an opportunity to pull it in then, but then also now have this in your back pocket as the way that you are presenting information in, say, a flipped classroom or in an online space um, to introduce a new unit to. So things that can be used in multiple ways are really nice to have. And I call you know, those movie making tools, those website creation tools. Um, I refer to them as open-ended creation tools because they're not prescriptive. You're not going to earn points or badges or anything like that. There's no right way to use them. You can really tailor it to um, the work that you, you set out for, for yourself and for students to, to do. You know, speaking of an open-ended platform, I think podcasting and audio format is definitely open-ended I think it can be accessed almost anywhere. And I think it could be a technology that's interesting for people in higher education. So have you seen folks use an audio format successfully in their classroom? And and if so, do you have recommendations for people doing something that's relatively low tech. I mean, I think people are intimidated by the format, but as, as a podcaster and we're podcasters, we know that once you get it set up, it's, it's not terribly difficult to do. Any recommendations for people that want to use the audio format? Absolutely. I think this is something that, you know, I've seen in high school classrooms, where they are looking at the narrative arc in serial podcasts and talking about it from an English language arts perspective. So from consumption, right, there's a lot of use of podcasts happening that way. There's even great ones for young learners for read aloud books and folk tales. But for that creation side of things, yes, you have tools like GarageBand, right, which you can pull up on a Mac or iOS device. One that I love that's more collaborative is Soundtrap. So Soundtrap has an education and a straight-to-consumer version. They were acquired by Spotify last year. So Soundtrap actually lets you jump in from multiple places with multiple users and almost, you know, kind of lay down your tracks back to back if you want. So there can be this kind of response or interview. Great for students who might collaborate in different time zones. So someone wakes up, listens, gives their response, and then someone else jumps in, you know, eight hours later when they might not be up at the same time to do that sort of work. Another that's a little bit newer is called Synth like synthesizer. And so synth allows you to, as an educator, set up this dashboard and then you can have your students um, respond in really short bursts. Um, they refer to them as bite-sized podcasts. And so it's all audio-based as opposed to, say, looking into a webcam and posting a quick video response. It's all audio, so it can be very much on the go, ready for any device. They have a mobile app and then web-based too. And an educator can then see this whole stream of responses 
and hit play and they all just go back to back to back. So from a formative assessment standpoint, you know, it can be really powerful and it might be something that a student then downloads and puts into a different type of, you know, more formal um, presentation, but Soundtrap, GarageBand for your nice, clean, crisp, you know, published content is wonderful. And then Synth for something that's more fluid, on the go, more performative assessment as opposed to culminating um, projects is definitely one um, I've been excited about and been recommending. You mentioned a lot of great platforms there. I think that I didn't even know these existed in terms of the collaborative, uh, the collaborative audio. That's very interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes here, not only for the show notes, but for my personal, uh, for the work that I do with the research center, I think we can, we can start to look into some of these tools as how to connect because you mentioned something about connecting people across time zones. And one of the challenges I have in, in my day job is that we, uh, have, four different time zones at some time during the year where all the graduate students are in, yeah, like I said, four different time zones. So it's really hard to do something that syncs up like, oh, let's do something over lunch. Well, actually that's not possible <laughs> because they're all, they're all spread out. So tools that can link people across time are, are very interesting for me personally. Uh, so th- I'm going to definitely be looking into that um, Soundtrap app. Yeah, I think you'll love it. It's really powerful. They've come a long way. And they're one of my favorite ed tech stories too, um, because what I've heard as part of their kind of origin, right, is they're more of a consumer tool and then teachers found it. And so my understanding is they got some sort of email or message from the library association saying, oh, you won our tech tool of the year. And they're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) And then they realized there was this whole audience of people in education who found it, made it their own. And now they have a very robust, you know, education side of their business because um, teachers knew that there would be a a purpose for it in the classroom. I think that that's this whole other angle of creativity that is entering education uh, about how it's even done, right? On this kind of meta level of, all right, these are some parts of education are rigid for a reason, right? Because there's this institutional knowledge and there's a way that we follow the, you know, process of, of codifying the knowledge and making sure that it's right. And then there's this other way that technology advances, advances, which is just breakneck speed, no um, kind of arbitration of correctness. It's just whatever wins, wins. Mm-hmm. And so this this kind of connection between those two worlds where there's just this slow and steady need to kind of ratify everything to make sure that the knowledge institution is intact, but at the same time to take advantage of this wild west of ways to disseminate the knowledge, I think that that creates kind of this overwhelmingness. So um, what's really been neat, I guess what you were talking about that made me think of a question, we have been asking our students in um, this class that I teach, which is, uh, I guess I should say lead, it's not so much teach because it's a, a very interactive research project with people from all different educational levels and backgrounds. And people are constructing narratives to disseminate to broad audiences of environmental problems with a very big science legal policy basis, but then also appreciating kind of the humanities and how do you construct a story and and tell it. And so I've learned so much just through that from them bringing back, did you know that there is 
you know, sparks that you mentioned, you know, and, and different platforms to get this information out. So I guess that was all a reaction so far, but my question for you is, do you see higher education radically changing in the next, you know, 10 years? Like I, I, I feel like the the stickiness of how things have been done before is really strong, but I also feel this tension that that's breaking away. And so in your expertise going around talking to all kinds of different educators, what do you think people should look for in how things are going to be just different than how we have seen them so far? Well, it's interesting because a few years ago, there was a lot of buzz around MOOCs or those massive open right courses. And as if that was going to completely replace everything that was happening in higher education. And clearly we've seen that it hasn't, right? It's been something that's supplemental. I'm sure, you know, there are numbers that have been reported and numbers that aren't reported about how many folks sign up and even finish, right? Courses that they spend some time jumping into, right? So there's lots of layers there that I think made that an interesting argument for disruption in the space. Now, I think that you know, as you're looking at, you know, more things happening, more type of technology integration taking place, it really is something that is program by program, right? Institution by institution, but also within institutions. So I'm sure you see this in your own work, right? Where you might have one department, one particular program, right? That has the space and autonomy to make decisions that has supportive leadership, um, that's particularly innovative or sees the value in bringing something in or the value in a partnership with an, another institution outside of the space um, that can help support that work. So you might have colleagues on the same campus who are doing things very different um, when it comes to integration of digital tools. And so I think that you know, is interesting to watch and because it's very different than K-12 institutions, which tend to be more kind of system-wide change, right? Or you have one district or one superintendent um, who's making decisions and just having technology for the sake of it, like doesn't put anyone in that innovative bucket either, right? You've There's plenty of stories of schools and districts, big and small, right? Going one-to-one and then hands off. And like, just because you have that in the corner of your room doesn't mean you're doing anything particularly special, Right. So I think that some of this disruption will continue to happen in these smaller pockets. And because it's hard to replicate just one model, because there's so many variables in different spaces, I don't necessarily think there's going to be one thing that goes off and is adopted everywhere as much as you know, continuous shift of mindsets when there's more and more examples of what something really strong can look like in an environment where they are you know, just an understanding of the specific needs of that school, that population, the culture that's being built right around that particular um, kind of coursework. Yeah. You know, what you said is also making me think in talking about population that people in the classroom are um, by, you know, inherently focused on the population of of humans right in front of them, which is, that makes sense. And the relationality of that, as you said, with the the advent and lack of full-on takeover of MOOCs, right? That personal interaction is important. Um, But it reminds me, a friend of mine named Mark Sperber runs a program developing different ed tech apps 
to deploy rapid online education for ASU in refugee camps around the world. So populations of people that you do not think of as having access to higher ed. So I wonder if you could just talk to sort of what are these, what are things like that where there are populations of people not right in front of your face that whole worlds might be opened up for where your education could be disseminated as a researcher? It's interesting because, you know, in the past, you know, in the not so long ago past, um, we talked a lot about this access gap, right? So this digital divide of who can actually hold that tool in their hand. Um, But now the conversation has shifted more to the quality use cases, right? So someone might have that device in their hand, but what are they actually doing with it? So when you talk about that example of someone right in a faraway space who is accessing coursework, who has this support, right? Who has these high quality resources, there might even be someone closer to home with that same device, right? Who's not having a quality educational experience on it, right? Based on their understanding of what access can be in a support that they can have right close to home. So I think that when we look at that kind of faraway spaces and what it looks like to leverage digital tools in that way, right? It'll continue to be a conversation around right, quality and access to that information, with support, right, in addition to the connectivity, right, of their device and the actual device in their hand. So I do think that that's going to be a really interesting, uh, you know, space to watch as we keep moving into a situation where more and more people in every corner of the world, right, can get that internet signal and can access content in a language that is friendly for that. Yeah, and and pivoting a little bit in talking about the quality of the interaction with the technology. I know that a lot of people in our audience are, are STEM folks, and I've been hear, hearing and seeing a little bit on Twitter of people trying to integrate uh, VR, virtual reality, into their classrooms. And I know that your first episode of your podcast is actually about virtual reality and integrating that into the classroom. So I wanted to sort of pick your brain a little bit on this this topic because it's an investment, right? Let's say you're in engineering school and you have to invest in VR goggles for, you know, 20 people for a classroom. Um, you're going to need to convince your department, your dean, that this is worth it. Uh, and so one of the questions I have is, well, how to effectively integrate this into the classroom? But the the follow-up question to that will be, how to measure what kind of impact this is having on the students so that it justifies the investment into that kind of a technology. Yeah, it's wild to think about how much has changed and grown within the space when it comes to VR. And this, you know, the spectrum of virtual reality that I talk about, and I know people would argue that the lower level of the one that I put into this bucket does not really count, right, as VR in that sense that we um, would like to move towards. And I'll I'll mention that kind of why about that in a moment. But, you know, from a secondary K-12, from a higher education perspective, there are some fantastic things going on right now. Um, Lifelike is one 
They have Microsoft HoloLens compatibility. I've put it on myself and you can pick up and move and spin the shark around and tap on the screen and do all these sort of understandings of different parts of an animal. And it's really, you know, wild, right? And then you have things like Z-Space, which is popular in both an elementary all the way up through higher education level, where you can, you know, with a what feels like tweezers, pick up items, spin them around, look on both sides with your glasses, special Z space glasses on and do some really fantastic things within STEM and, you know, in other areas too. You know, so there's a lot that's happening there, you know, with headsets. And just last year I was at, I was here in Chicago again for the ISTE conference, which typically is a bit more K-12 focused, um, although they do have, you know, things for higher ed as well. But at the ISTE conference, Microsoft showed off their headset with their immersive reader technology, where you looks like you're watching the credits come across the screen at a movie theater, yet you have a headset on and you're reading along with what looks almost like a teleprompter, um, practicing reading skills and support for students with variety of reading needs. So STEM, right, and beyond, a lot that's happening. And in order to really make the case for this and to show that it's going to have some power and influence, I think there's a few things, you know, to consider. One is that how is this going to do something different that we just couldn't have done before? So right away, we're adding this extra layer in terms of simulation and interaction that's going to take that textbook content, you know, out of the textbook, right? So that we can apply it in a different environment or take a look at things that are more hands-on. And, you know, for measurement of that, right, yes, you could make an argument that this might increase test scores if that's going to be, right, that kind of quantitative look that you're looking for in terms of a baseline and a deeper understanding of something than another group of students, right, who don't necessarily have that experience. But I would be much more interested in the conversation students are having, the way that they're now able to apply this experience to more authentic learning experiences that may not be as natural or may not as be as quickly able to connect to something that might be a little bit more of a kind of textbook lecture or interaction with content. So, you know, that being said, you know, when I talk to kindergarten teachers about using virtual reality, you know, the conversation's different than I do in higher ed or secondary, right? For them, it might be students sitting on the floor, right? On a carpet with an iPad in their hand, turning that iPad back and forth as they get a look in every direction of a place. Um, they explore a coral reef by looking back and forth. And, you know, our younger students, we don't want them to have a head where students at a different age, right? Could have a very different interaction and experience. So, it's been exciting to see uh, different ways that it has been introduced into classrooms. I think that the lifelike um, programs that are compatible with Microsoft HoloLens and ZSpace are two that if someone is interested with STEM or beyond, learning a little bit more about what VR can look like in K-12 and higher ed, um, that's a great place to start to get some, some ideas and information. I think speaking of where to start, I mean, how does a professor engage with this stuff? Do they just start you know, looking online individually, or are there professional, they're starting to be like professional organizations. I mean, aside from your, your excellent blog and podcast, of course, um, are there places that they can look for guidance to, to get started? So the ISTE conference that I mentioned, I-S-T-E. Um, so that 
is the international kind of go-to and K-12 ed tech conference. And that is one where you'll have lots of exhibitors and exhibitors providing presentations, as well as educators using different tools, um, presenting on what it looks like in action. So that's a really great space to just walk up, have a conversation with someone. I've been on the Z-Space bus <laughs> um, before that they drive into expo halls, right? So that's something where, you know, I know I show up to those conferences with questions in my back pocket that someone has emailed me or sent me on Twitter and I'm still wondering about or a school I'm working with is saying, do you know if we can do this? And I'm like, I'm not sure, but I'm going to this thing next week and I'm going to find that person <laughs> at the booth and I'm going to talk to them about this, right? Instead of scheduling a demo call, I want to try it out, right? And make sure it's going to feel good before I recommend it to you. So those type of conferences... ISTE is one. FETC um, is another. I think that will be in Miami uh, next January. TCEA. Those are the three big um, national and regional conferences within the K-12 um, and beyond, you know, ed tech space. That's really nice to get a hands-on, you know, look at things. You know, I've also had great experiences at South by Southwest EDU. I was there last year, um, not this year, and presented a couple years ago on this idea of augmented reality and scannable technology. And so, that's a great way to connect with people on the ground and really try some things out, you know, hands-on um, so that you can get a feel for it. But many companies, right, if you do a search or you do reach out or you find someone like, you know, my resources where I may mention a few things that grab your attention, uh, companies are not just happy to kind of get on a call to talk through what it is that they can do, but they may be, all, be able, um, depending on the scale of their organization, to recommend someone that's in your region to go check out. And that way you can really say, like, is this working? What does it look like in action? It's great to talk to the person who's, you know, the director of marketing who may or may not have classroom experience, but I really want to talk to someone who used this with students yesterday, right? So I can feel good. Um, that this is going to be the right fit or if I need to move on and kind of take a look at something else. I love the advice uh, trying to find someone regionally you can drive to that you can at least see something in action because I guess with this stuff, it, I would be the same way. I, I consider myself kind of a techie, but I, it would be it's so much better if you could just hold something in your hand see see how the students are 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 reacting to a technology than just even watching a video of it online right it, you, to be physically present with the technology is is a huge piece and that's a great great piece of advice for our um our professors and aspiring professors yeah, it makes a world of a difference. And I wrote a blog post, I think it went up last week, where I joked, but it was true, right, that I was at a conference um, in Texas, and I was going to check out these augmented reality classroom rugs where the animals like pop off the rug, and you could do these habitat things. And I got there, I saw it, I, you know, threw my conference bag, you know, in the corner of the booth and just like got on the rug. I was like, show me how this works, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, let's try this out, right? I really want to see this like from the level that a five-year-old is going to be at. Um, so I can know what this looks like. Like, is this going to be scary? Is this going to be fun? And it was just a moment where, you know, I could really make sure that I felt good about something too. So all of those, you know, folks who come to those conferences, who are ready to jump on a phone call, right? They should be able to point you in the direction of places where their tool is working. They've been around for a little bit, right? Or they should be super motivated to share some use cases or let you be the pilot um, school for something if they're just growing. 
You know what I love about this last couple of exchanges in the conversation is just it brings it back to, okay, it's digital technology. It is this other part of reality, but it is all about the human experience. So even checking out the digital technology options, it goes better when your actual face-to-face interaction is happening. Um, and so I think that that's uh, slightly ironic, but actually just highlights the fact that it shouldn't be uncomfortable to educators to be incorporating this thing, because it's all about how do you make the stronger dissemination of knowledge and co-creation of knowledge between two human beings, many, many human beings, more than two, right? Um, but that it, it's an extension of our abilities rather than a, like an abstraction and a distancing of ourselves from human knowledge. And I, I think just philosophically, that's interesting to shift for, especially for me. So I've, I've led an informatics group for years, but I, I promise you, I can break a phone just by looking at it. And so <laughs> Matt's laughing because he's, he's seeing my powers in action. I'm just I'm not a, a technological, um, I'm not a tech native. And so really just kind of focusing on the fact that it, it is um, a set of, of, tactics and new toolboxes, like you said, for doing what we were already trying to do, but in more powerful ways. So just to not be intimidated by it, I guess it's a pep talk for me and anybody else like me who can break a phone by looking at it. No, absolutely. And I like what you mentioned about, um, you know, all of these components of, of what it looks like to scale this, right, and to build a confidence around it. And, you know, that's really part of the motivation with my new podcast, the Easy EdTech podcast was saying, like, let's just do it. Like, let's just try it. <laughs> um, we'll see if it breaks, right? Um, and I end the podcast with, you know, three or four steps to just make it happen. Like, let's make this easy. Don't overthink it, right? Because then all those wheels will start spinning about taking it to the next level as soon as you're in it. And that's going to happen without even me kind of giving you more things to think about. And so I hope that it, it really helps um, folks, you know, build that confidence to really put things into action. And I, I think that's a perfect way to end the show. I, I would invite everyone to go over and listen to, to Monica's podcast. Uh, Dr. Monica Burns, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time out from uh, your traveling into, to, to talk to us today. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. Wonderful chatting with you both. A couple things before you go here, Team Helium. Please come by and say hello at Helium Podcast on Twitter or at Helium Pod on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, what your opinions about the show are, how we can bring on guests that are relevant to you. We really appreciate our community that is surrounding the podcast and the support that you've shown us so far. The show notes for this episode can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash episode 31. There we'll link to any apps or websites or books that the guest has mentioned on the show. So you can go there. We also have time stamped audio. So you can click on different parts of the audio to listen to that clip of the show. So if you want to go back and listen to it, you can go there. One last thing before we go, Team Helium, the month of August for Helium Podcast is all about onboarding. So we'll have two episodes for you in the month of August. 
one of those episodes is going to be a roundup episode. So we've asked a lot of podcasts that serve PhDs to give us some clips about their best experiences being onboarded into labs and groups that they work with. So it's really a exercise where you can go through and listen to best practices or pick out certain things that these folks are suggesting for onboarding your folks into your lab and take the things that you like. So that'll be the first episode in August. The second episode in August will feature me and I'll be talking about a specific psychological principle that you can follow with your mentees to really improve their performance and your relationship with them. We can't wait for you to hear these onboarding episodes from August. As usual, the music for this episode was provided by Michael Blake at mblakemusic.com. This episode was edited by Zach Hindren and produced by Christine Ogilvie Hendren and myself, Matt Hotze. Until next time, we wish you the best as an early career researcher, landing, mastering, and leading in your faculty positions.